This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to Pacific Review from ABC Radio Australia. I'm Evan Wasuka. Coming up, a new Pacific visa offering permanent residency in Australia is gaining support in the region, but there's lingering concerns over a skills drain. We'll be waiting to see what this looks like in terms of the detail and what the processes are and how accessible they're going to be to people in the Pacific. And also whether it's something that Pacific Island people are going to warm to. Vanuatu looks to legalise the production and export of medical cannabis and industrial hemp. We can actually decrease the uh, THC content in local plants, making them sort of uh, useless to smoke over the period of time. Now, this is an advantage for... Um, any of the areas in Vanuatu that have a problem with locally grown cannabis. It'll essentially make the local plant ineffective for smoking and of no use. And a Samoan Australian giant makes a splash at the Super Bowl. It is a minor miracle to have somebody like Jordan Mailata in the Super Bowl considering the pathway that he's taken. And so I think there's going to be a lot more interest in whether the international you know, player pathway. We'll have more on those stories coming up. Pacific Islanders are feeling hopeful they could get the chance to permanently settle in Australia under a new migration scheme. Legislation tabled in the Australian Parliament this week aims to introduce a new Pacific engagement visa. If passed, it will give 3,000 Pacific Islanders the right to live permanently in Australia annually. But as Marion Farr reports, becoming one of those 3,000 will be a little like winning the lottery. Solomon Island resident Tiffany Miner would jump at the chance to settle in Australia. I'd like to go and work to support my family back in Solomon Islands. The young mother is hoping she'll get lucky in Australia's new visa lottery. Under a scheme tabled in the Australian Parliament yesterday, 3,000 Pacific Islanders will be randomly selected to migrate to the country each year. I have two children, so this is important for their education and also for my own education to go on and do further studies. Solomon Island citizen Frank Zio also wants to be picked. For the scheme, yeah, I'm really interested to be part of a new scheme. Having recently returned from almost two years working in Australia, He'd love to go back permanently. It's really helpful for people. The Pacific Engagement Visa was part of the new Australian government's 2022 election promise to bolster ties with the Pacific. Under the scheme, citizens from around the Pacific can apply to be part of the so-called visa lottery. If their name is drawn, applicants will then have to secure a work offer from an Australian employer to be eligible. They'll also have to pass a health check and a character test and be able to speak some English. The scheme is only open to people between the ages of 18 and 45. While some are jumping at the idea of living in Australia, Pacific Affairs expert Dr Tess Newton-Kane thinks it could take a while to kick off. I think it will take a while for people to become aware of it and understand it. She says the government will have to work on raising awareness about the scheme and how it differs from other initiatives like the Pacific Australia Labor Mobility Scheme. I think there will need to be quite a lot of work done in Pacific Island countries to ensure that everyone understands what this is. The Australian government is hoping the new scheme will come into effect by July. While the full details are yet to be released, it's understood it'll be open to citizens from a number of Pacific nations and Timor-Leste. 
not like, oh, well, there's this many for Papua New Guinea and there's this many for Samoa or whatever else. There are 3,000 available in total. If the scheme gains popularity, Dr Newton Keynes says that quota could be easily reached. We'll be waiting to see what this looks like in terms of the detail and what the processes are and how accessible they're going to be to people in the Pacific and also whether it's something that Pacific Island people are going to warm to. The Australian government says the new visa aims to improve Australia's relationship with the Pacific through bolstering migration. For Fiji citizen Vina Quilla, the message has hit home. I strongly believe it's high time that Australia steps up and, um, and make us uh, understand that we truly are a Pacific family. But the initiative doesn't come without concern in the Pacific. Ms Quilla says it could lead to skilled workers leaving their home countries for good. But with Fiji's struggling economy and rising cost of living, she thinks the benefits will outweigh the costs. There's a lot of people still waiting to work. Um, a few to go to Australia, I would say, is going to help. Fijian Vainet Quilla ending that report by Marian Farr with additional reporting by Kristen Rita Amanu Leong in Honera and Lida Mavona in Suva. Vanuatu will soon offer licenses allowing businesses to grow and sell medical cannabis and hemp around the country. It comes as other Pacific islands also take steps to legalize the sale and production of the plant. But the move is controversial, with some saying government should instead be looking at supporting traditional products rather than entering this new market. Priyanka Srinivasan with more. Former policeman Iso Kapum from the island of Tana in Vanuatu wasn't always a big supporter of cannabis. When he was working, he'd often see the ugly side of the drug. Most of my time being chasing uh, the criminals and uh, one of the things that happens to be the the criminals in Vanuatu is the consumption or illegal consumption of the marijuana. But a meeting with Australian businessman Andrew Smith changed Mr Kapum's mind on the matter. He came to see cannabis, the plant that produces the marijuana drug, but also other products like oil, medicine and hemp, as a new market for his people. I believe that uh, it is more reliable after doing so much uh, research and so much findings on, on this product. I tend to find out that it is very, very valuable to the islands of the south uh, of the uh, southern hemisphere. The Vanuatu government is also banking on that high value of cannabis too. It recently passed regulations to allow the import, cultivation, production and sale of medical cannabis and hemp in the country. Once the regulations are gazetted, seven licenses will be sold to businesses at a cost of 10 million vatu or 12,000 Australian dollars each. Mr Kapum, whose company Tafea Industries is planning to apply for the license to grow and sell medical cannabis, says he's grateful the country is taking these steps. We want to make it look uh, a company that is owned by the people and for the people because at the end of the day, we, we want people to get half a direct benefit on it. But not everyone is on board. Mr Kapum and his Australian business partner were run out of his house when they first started discussing their plans to start a cannabis farm. My wife uh, drew us out of the door and asked us to leave because he, she thought it, it, it was 
something that is going to be forbidden to talk about. And though Mr. Kapum's wife is now on board, others are still not convinced. Now, no social side. On the social side, I think it's a dangerous decision that the government has made. Sam Nayu is the Tafia Province Agricultural Officer from Tana Island. When we're asleep in the night, someone can sneak through the fence and steal the marijuana. Maybe the government can introduce the product somewhere remote, where the population is low. Don't go to Tanner first, but allow it in a place where it's easier to control, where security is strong and the production is safe. But Mr Nayu also sees the potential in cannabis production for the people of Tana. Now the island's most lucrative crops are coffee and vanilla, products that are very vulnerable to climate change and extreme weather. Cannabis could provide another money crop, but Mr Nayu says there are other ways the government can support local farmers. Vanuatu hasn't even exported a local root crop, but now it wants to export something like marijuana that brings risks to this place? We're already happy here, selling our local fruits and vegetables at a small scale. It's not the first time Vanuatu has dabbled in medicinal cannabis. In 2019, a company, Phoenix Life Sciences, controversially made a deal with the government to test its cannabis-derived pills on diabetes patients. The project never got off the ground, and its founder was convicted of securities fraud in the United States. But Mr. Smith, the co-founder of Tafea Industries, says people need to be educated about what the plant can offer. This is not the holy grail of medicine. These claims need to be substantiated through uh, medical professionals and uh, the desired professionals before they're made by any companies at all. And he says his company will look at developing medicinal plants that can't be abused as a drug. We can actually decrease the uh, THC content in local plants, making them sort of uh, useless to smoke over the period of time. Now, this is an advantage for um, any of the areas in Vanuatu that have a problem with locally grown cannabis. It'll essentially make the local plant ineffective for smoking and of no use. Vanuatu is not the only Pacific country looking to legalise the production and sale of medical marijuana. In Cook Islands, a government team has been appointed to look into the issue. And in Guam, the first licences have already been given out to local businesses to start selling cannabis. Charlie Hermosa has applied for a licence on the US territory, not to grow marijuana, but to deliver it using his fleet of drones. When we started looking at industries that were really moving uh, forward, you know, we, we thought that, you know, our application of drones would really play well within the, the industry of cannabis, understanding that there's other regulations that come to it. He's grateful that Guam has welcomed the new industry and says cannabis could provide a lucrative income stream to other Pacific nations as well. I feel that it could represent a good economic development for nations, island nations that can, can cultivate in, in, in a way that can commercialize and produce you know, and, and sell and create another economic uh, way to be able to you know, make money. Vanuatu, though, is looking for established companies to start growing on its islands. To be eligible for its cannabis licenses, businesses must have at least 10 years' experience in the field. The government says it's one way to manage the high risk around the drug. Priyanka Srinivasan with that report. Surfing and politics are two words you rarely hear in the same sentence. But in Fiji, surfing has at times become a politically charged issue. 
Liam Fox with this report explaining why it's such a big issue in Suva. Fiji is home to world-class surf breaks. Perhaps the most famous is Cloud Break off the west coast of the main island Viti Levu. Today, anyone can surf there, locals and tourists, but that wasn't always the case. Once, you had to shell out thousands of dollars to stay at a nearby resort which had exclusive access rights to the waves. That changed in 2010 when the then military dictatorship led by Frank Bainimarama passed its surfing decree. Part of it reads, The decree gives access to and the use of any surfing area in Fiji by any person. Any person may now use any surfing area in Fiji without obtaining any permit or approval and without the payment of any monies. The decree expressly prohibits any exclusive use of any surfing area. Not only that, anyone who prevented a surfer from accessing a wave could be fined and sent to jail. The stated aim was to promote Fiji as a premier surfing destination and allow locals, not just foreigners, to get involved in surfing-related businesses like tour operators and accommodation providers. It was also hoped the decree would help develop the sport of surfing in the country, something the president of the Fiji Surfing Association, Hannah Bennett, says it did successfully. Before the decree, you know, we didn't have much uh, local development or local presence in the surfing scene. And since that, since the decree in 2010, it has opened it up for everyone, including the locals. So from a surfing standpoint, yeah, we've got more presence um, in the lineup, which is amazing. But it's also opened up opportunities towards career pathways and opportunities for our surfers to also take um, their surfing to the next level and, and go and compete abroad. But all that could be about to change. Frank Bainimarama is no longer in power after national elections late last year and the new government has signalled its intent to repeal several of his decrees and laws, including the surfing decree. The new Deputy Prime Minister and Tourism Minister Bill Gavoka has long been a critic of the decree as it removed the rights of Indigenous landowners to control access to their coastlines and fishing grounds. It also banned other activities from surfing areas like fishing. Mr Gavoka has been quoted in local media over the last week as saying the decree had cost some villagers millions of dollars in potential income and that it will be repealed. That sparked concern in surfing and surf tourism circles, largely because of a lack of information about the possible change. Here's Hannah Bennett from the Surfing Association again. I was a little bit alarmed at first, um, but at the same time, uh, I think as part of the agenda with this new government and, you know, I don't think it's a negative thing. I think it's totally reasonable for the surfing decree to be re-looked at. I think there is some common ground that we can we can come to, you know, where the indigenous custodians, uh, you know, can have their rights and and get what they need and at the same time, local surfers can have access because a lot of these local surfers come from these from these villages and these golden gullies that have um, custodianship over the reef. Pacific Beat has spoken to several people in the surf tourism industry, locals and foreigners, and all expressed alarm at the potential repeal of the decree, though none wanted to comment publicly. At this stage, it's unclear what the government's plan is, whether it will repeal the decree in its entirety amend it or replace it with new regulations. Mr Gavoka has been unavailable for comment. Liam Fox reporting. The biggest sporting event in the United States, the Super Bowl, took place earlier this week. 
and among its stars was a 25-year-old Samoan Australian player, Jordan Mailata. His unlikely path to American football came by way of rugby league in Sydney, and there's hopes more Pacific Islanders can follow the same route. Kyle Evans with this report. As a junior rugby league player in Sydney's western suburbs, Daniel Hachati would breathe a sigh of relief when Jordan Mailata arrived for the match. Such was the dominance of his Samoan teammate on the football field. Can't say he was um, really ever really little. Uh, <laughs> he was always a big kid, you know, and growing up, it was always sort of looking up to him, both um, physically and obviously as he as we grew about a bit older, as well as in the sort of leadership. So the games where he's there, you you take so much confidence running out onto the field with. You know, when the second he rocks up, you know it's going to be a good day. And if for whatever reason he wasn't able to make a game, then you always knew that you had to put in 20 times harder work. So um, definitely, definitely had extra confidence and you know things were going to go well when he was on the field. To this day, Mylata has the same effect. But it's not the Bankstown Bulls who rely on him anymore. It's the Philadelphia Eagles in America's National Football League. He was drafted by the Eagles in 2018 after making the switch from Rugby League and the South Sydney Rabbitohs under-20s program. At the time, he was a project, someone with potential, but no previous gridiron experience. Now, he's an integral part of the Eagles, who will square off in Super Bowl 57 against the Kansas City Chiefs later today. I think the NFL definitely suits him in a sense where, you know, stop start, he can really put his power on show and that suits that sort of game. You know, he's very protective over his teammates and over his mates really in general. So, you know, protecting his quarterback and the team, whoever really has the ball, and that definitely suits his personality. It's that protective nature along with his immense size and strength that's made him an integral part of the team's offensive line. As the team's left tackle, Mylata protects the blind side of Star Eagles quarterback Jalen Hurts, and he's been key to the Eagles' success. I got you back, baby. You gotta admit, I got your ass back. Mylata will be one of a posse of players with Pacific ties taking part in Super Bowl 57, including Samoans Isaac Siumalo, Christian Ellis and Chiefs wide receiver Juju Smith-Schuster, and flying the Tongan flag for the Eagles, Marlon Tuipaluto. But David Lakisa, who has researched Pacific athletes in sport extensively for his PhD, says Mylata's unlikely rise represents something far more significant to the Pacifica community. For Pacific people, migration and, mob- and upward mobility, it's, it's, it's nothing new. they have been doing it for centuries. What is new is the context of it. My PhD research revealed four distinctive hallmarks that highlight Pacific contribution in sport. It's one family or kinship networks, two spirituality, three culture, which embodies a lot of different things from identity to you know values and customs, and lastly service. And so those four key hallmarks is what drives the Pacific mobility. And you'll find in sport today that the global north and the global south are becoming closer and closer. What do I mean by that? I mean Pacific contribution. And so when, say, The Rock or Roman Reigns Mm -hmm. achieve something or when Mark Hunt or Sonny Bill achieve something, that's not just for them. It's a collectivist culture. We all feel the upward mobility and the progress. I mean, Jordan's success is based on the collectivist nature of our culture. 
And so he's opened up pathways to more than just football. He's made it more achievable for young Pacific people and non-Pacific people. This is mm. a humanistic issue of inspiration, of, of pathways for all that you can transition and navigate any space. Mylata's success could have a far-reaching impact on the game of gridiron as well. Dr. Lisa Uparesa, Senior Lecturer in Pacific Studies at the University of Auckland, is the author of Gridiron Capital, a book which charts how American football has become central to Samoan communities. She says Mylata's rise could widen the Pacific pathway to the professional ranks. It is a minor miracle to have somebody like Jordan Mailata in the Super Bowl considering the pathway that he's taken. And so I think there's going to be a lot more interest in whether the international you know, player pathway is something that can recruit more people from this side of the Pacific. Uh, yeah. By the way, that's a six foot eight, 346-pound human being. And he, he ran Look a at that. And that report was by Kyle Evans. And Jordan Mailata's Philadelphia Eagles lost the Super Bowl to the Kansas City Chiefs. And a spot in the Women's World Cup football final will be up for grabs this weekend, with the Pacific just a step away from cementing history. But to get there, Papua New Guinea, that's the best team in Oceania, has to get through Panama on Sunday. As Talia Aulatea reports, it will be a chance for Oceania to make its mark on the international stage. After winning Oceania's top spot last year, it's now D-Day for Papua New Guinea's women's football team. And head coach Spencer Pryor says the stakes don't get any higher than a World Cup berth. Two games. Basically, it's semi-final, final football, it's straight knockout. I think we've got maybe seven or eight new players in this squad that haven't been in the national team before. So they've integrated really well. The seniors have been really gauging and getting everybody in and treating everybody the same. It's been a really good, safe environment where everybody's been made to feel welcome. The great thing about the new ones that are coming in is they've had no exposure to this sort of environment before. So there's certainly no element of fear within them because they don't have any expectations, which is great. Papua New Guinea need to win two games to qualify for the World Cup, the first of which will come against Panama on Sunday. We're probably going to need to use as many of them as possible if we're successful to get get to the World Cup, it's highly unlikely that we would be able to win these two matches back-to-back in such a short turnaround with the same 11 players for potentially 240 minutes if you're factoring in extra time in both games. So we've tried to make sure that we've got two two players per position And everybody understands their roles and responsibilities in that, whether they're starting in the first game or they're going to be coming on. Everybody knows their roles and responsibilities within it. It will also be a test for Spencer Pryor, who only took on the coaching role after Nicola Demain was sacked after winning the qualifying tournament in Fiji, with Cyclone Gabrielle also affecting the side's training preparations last week when it struck in Auckland. We're not going to be able to go into the game and actually win it in the first 45 minutes. But, you know, if we show fear and a bit of complacency or waiting to see what's going to happen, we could certainly lose it in the first 45 minutes. So we're kind of breaking the game down, first 15 minutes, next block of 10 minutes, then the rest of the first half. 
and really just making sure that we're super competitive. If we get our chances, we take them, but we certainly make sure that, you know, we we try and win our individual battles. Raylene Baolua has been named captain for the tournament and defender Margaret Joseph says this game will be the biggest of her life. I've played for the Under-20 Women's World Cup back in PNG 2016. And this, like, because we were hosting, so we were automatically to qualify for it. But this one, we have to qualify for it. So it's like another, the level is a bit higher than what, I'm expecting so um, we'll just take what we've learned there to now what we're going through. Meanwhile Callista Maneo who will be putting on the jersey for the first time is taking her motivation from her children who will be watching eagerly from home. The message to me is they say go mama yes I have um, five kids so they say go mother go mama go mama. And that's PNG's Carlisto Manio ending that report from Talia Aulatia, and PNG will take on Panama on Sunday. And that's it for Pacific Review for this week. I'm Evan Wasuka. Thank you for listening, and do join us again at the same time next week for more news and views from around the Pacific. <laughs>